imprecatory psalms. We are in Psalm 94. We were in the first few verses of this last week um, in verses 1 to 7. And we looked at this, this psalm. And this was essentially, uh, again, a psalm of Asaph. And it's a praying to the Lord for justice. We covered that section last week in our, um, in our look at it. And then point two and three we'll probably get to tonight. Um, warning the wicked of their danger. And this, again, is uh, part of really the aspect of the, the psalm as it's being sung, or as a, you could also use it as a prayer and a model prayer of things. But to understand that we need to warn those who are committing evil acts, not just sort of endure it with the idea that, well, in the end we win, you know, theologically, I know that it's going to work out, but actually to also be a witness to those that are committing great evil. And the psalmist reminds us of that in this prayer that he has. And so we're going to look at that point too and uh, go from there. We'll read Psalm 94, verse 8 to 11. Psalm 94, verse 8. It says, Understand, you senseless among the people, and you fools, when, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? He who instructs the nations, shall he not correct? He who teaches man knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are futile. And we're going to just stop there. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you that you are the one that is indeed in control of all things, and you even know the thoughts of of man. And Lord, you know us better than we know ourselves. Thank you that you are the one that formed the eye, and you know... Lord, what's in us and through us and what is the beginning from the end because you have an eye or eyes, O God, that see everything. Thank you for that. And now, Lord, as we look at this, help us to be instructed in righteousness and go the way of the wise. In Jesus' name, amen. The psalmist begins this and he says, Understand, you senseless among the people and you fools, when will you be wise? And he transitions here from, in verse 7 there, sort of talks about these ones that are um, against God and they don't take really any mind of God in the sense that they, they just say, well, he's not interested in us, right? He can't see. And we'll get to that verse later here, but it's where we ended off. And the word for senseless there, interesting word in the Hebrew, um, it means uh, to be stupid or ignorant and brutish. The idea of a brute beast, and in the root word of it, I, I didn't search this out entirely, but it is even used as a description of what animals do in the sense that they, they live, you know, wild, and um, it's used uh, in mucking out a barn, okay, getting rid of the manure. And, and he, he's using a word here that says that the, the person who's against God, um, this one that Asaph, is, or, or, that were to pray against, and all of that, They are like brute beasts. They don't know enough to even stop going to the bathroom on the floor, you know. And that's kind of the idea that um, sin heaped upon God or or sin upon sin is is just like that. It, It literally stinks before heaven, doesn't it? And stinks before the earth. And the idea here is someone who is ignorant. Someone who, not just in an ignorant sense, 
that they don't know. There's lots of people that fall into that category. There's a lot of things that at any given time, all of us in this room have things we are we do not know. I mean, you asked me to to um, you know take somebody and, and do brain surgery on them. It's not going to work. I'm just going to tell you that. All right. Uh, I don't know a lot about how to do brain surgery, and you wouldn't want your pastor doing that. All right. Um, but that's this one kind of ignorance, or in that case, but it's, it's a stronger word. We use it here as, as in the English as stupid. It really literally means someone who is willingly ignorant, somebody who commits acts that are, that are actually against God in this case. And they're called the fool, as he says, and you fools, when will you be wise? See, the foolish man, the foolish woman, that's how they live. They live really ignorant before God. <clears throat> the idea of a brute beast, like behaving like animals, and in some ways that is what goes on when man loses his knowledge of the living God. And he loses this idea that an all-knowing and all-seeing and all-powerful God is still in control of things. He begins to live like an animal. And we see a lot of that in our own nation today where crime is on the rise and people, it seems like, live like animals so often, right? And it's not because of their circumstances sometimes if, that they've been in that situation so much as they have created it and act out their desires like animals do in that way. We're warned in the New Testament of the same kind of people. And in both the book of Jude and in Second Peter, the writers there uh, talk about apostates, those that come into the faith or they appear to have somewhat of, you know, an umbrella of, of belief or faith, but really they're nothing more than brute beasts. They're like that. And that's the description that is used, for instance, in Second Peter chapter 2. And keep in mind, like Psalm 94, that kind of person who is living in ignorance, purposeful ignorance, and living foolishly, and keep that in mind of and committing great evil uh, in, in the description that Peter uses later on here in Second Peter 2. He says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness <coughs> to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Now, it's important to understand that because here Peter cites three examples of where God judged sin in, among the angels, those that rebelled with Lucifer, and he cast them down, it says, and he judged them and will ultimately judge them forever in, in the lake of fire, in hell. Um, he then says the days of Noah, those that committed ungodly acts in the days of Noah. And we know what the world was like in the days of Noah because it's described in the book of Genesis. It says that violence filled the earth. Uh, and, and man's heart was continually set on violence from the youngest to the oldest with the exception of Noah and those that believed, those in his own household, and they went into the ark and they were spared, weren't they? Um, and then Sodom and Gomorrah, and they were turned to ashes, those two cities. 
And here Peter reminds the world, and he reminds those that will be reading this, right, including us, that God will have the last word. And that should kind of, you know, make somebody pause at least and think before they go out and they oppose God. And it says, and delivered righteous lot. By the way, I always love that verse. You know why? It's not being like, uh, here Peter, he's, he's really talking about the theological foundation of Lot. D- do you ever see any righteousness in Lot's life coming out of Sodom? No. Other than he was dragged out, and later on he commits a great sin with, with his daughters. And you say, how was he righteous? Because he had believed. And he was declared righteous. And God delivered even a backslidden believer like Lot. And I can just say this, that that is a a great hope for any of us, right? It should be. And again, it's the understanding of justification. Justification is a declaration of righteousness, even though in practice you may not be living so righteous. You should. Your actions should follow. Um, Anyways, uh, that's a side note. He says, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the the wicked. So he ended up living in a situation he shouldn't have, and it brought about wickedness. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. And one would have to stop and say, if you were Lot, why did you stay? And it eventually brought judgment, and everything Lot had invested in was stripped away except for him when he was delivered out. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of the uncleanness and despise authority. And by the way, those things go together. Lust of uncleanness and despising authority. Um, If you don't have the proper authority of who God is, and his order and his laws in, uh, in a proper view of your world, then it will play out in our actions as, well, brute beasts, going out committing all kinds of great evils and things like that. Um, uncleanness and despising authority, they are presumptuous self-will. They are, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Even angels know when to shut their mouths. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. Boy, not not very pleasant description. Peter's pretty harsh, but that's what they're like. And and he, he says they will be caught up in their own corruption, it says, and will utterly perish in their own corruption. Um, ultimately that's if someone doesn't repent of their sin and that is the destiny they are going to be really judged by the extent of their own sin in that and um, that happens sometimes doesn't it somebody even in the here and now not just in the future 
but sometimes somebody commits a great evil act and they meet somebody who uh, meets them head on and, and takes their life instead of them taking their life. You know, things like that. That happens. Um, those kind of things. Or I, I read a story or heard an illustration of a, uh, this was back in, in Belgium, in Antwerp, uh, Belgium, in, you know, some days ago, not this year, but I mean decades ago or somewhere in that. And there was a guy who was burglarizing homes and he burglarized one home. He was um, sort of caught in his act of burglary and he escaped out the back of this house and he jumped uh, he scaled was able to scale a nine foot wall on one side of it and jumped down into a courtyard only to discover he had jumped into the courtyard of the city prison and he couldn't get back out so I, i thought what a picture there of how sin captures us right we think we can evade it we can move on and yet god will have the last say won't he and uh, that stuff happens. goes on, the uh, book of Jude describes apostates the same way. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. <laughs> Just exactly what Psalm 94 says. They are ignorant. And they uh, live for themselves alone. And whatever they know, it says naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. So... Jude has that same declaration there with that. Psalm 94, 7, it says, Yet they say, and this is the verse before that section that we read, The Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. You see, when, when people's mindset comes to a point where they don't believe in God, or they suppress the knowledge of God, and they, they think, well, God doesn't see my sin. And it's when we come to the point where we understand that God knows and sees all, it, that we understand we're naked before him in that way. And we need salvation. We need to be clothed in his righteousness, his holiness. And that will do one of two things for the sinner. Either the sinner will reject and flee and hope that he's going to escape somehow. The Bible says you won't escape. How shall we escape? Right? So great salvation. Right? We can't, if we neglect so great salvation, there's only one way. And it's through Christ, and he was judged for our sin. And that's the other option. The sinner has a choice to to flee to Christ for refuge and mercy and grace. The idea of the fact that God sees and understands and hears all things um, is something that I think is foundational to evangelize people. If you come to the average person today who is uh, in, the, you know, in our nation or even in our community, a lot of people don't have that idea that God is omniscient. Um, some do. Some have that kind of knowledge that, yes, God sees all things, and I better just behave or at least be a little better than the next guy because you know, God will have his eyes on that person. We're not realizing that the Lord sees all, everything, all the time. Paul used that in his sermon, as his discussion it really was, in Acts chapter 17 when he's in Athens. And he, um, he's preaching, he's really evangelizing the Athenians, these that had gathered to speak about new things. And here Paul comes along talking about a resurrection. But before he gets to there, look what it says in Acts 17.24. He says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. What's he teaching? He's teaching that God's a creator, 
And he also teaches that God is everywhere present. In other words, he isn't contained just in a temple. And Paul had just walked through the uh, center of Athens as he was heading up onto Areopagus, Mars Hill. And as he's going there, he sees all these temples dedicated to gods, different gods. And there was one to the unknown God. So he says, him whom you ignorantly worship, I declare unto you. And you know, it's one thing not to know who God is. It's another thing to know who God is and then not want to worship him. And that's the difference. There were some that believed and there was others that mocked. Anyways, he goes on to say this. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. In Psalm 94, the psalmist there says, asks the question, um, He who made the eye, does he not see? You think about that. Just take the human eye and the complexity of the human eye. And those of us know that when your eyes start going bad or whatever a little bit or change focus and the muscles don't work like they used to, things like that, uh, the eye is a very complicated little member in the body. And it sees color, it sees light, right? It, it has all the uh, interpretation of things, the the optic nerve is the is not only short but one of the largest nerves as far as what carries information directly to your brain all of those things that go on to that so complicated that they haven't even figured out really how to replicate a human eye in any form that can interact with our brains like there's no bionic eyes per se they're so complicated and here we are thinking that god who made the eye like somehow he can't see God who made the ear, he can't hear. He's the one that created everything, absolutely everything, in all its intricacy and detail, and he holds it together, and he's a powerful God. Anyways, he gives to all life, breath, and all things. In other words, Paul teaches here to the Athenians, he's the God who is actually allowing you to be alive right now. He's given breath to you. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. Here it is in the Bible. We're all of one blood. And by the way, I don't believe that there are races of people. There is just one race. It's the human race. And that's theologically correct. That's what the Bible teaches. There are racial distinctions, I guess you could say, or ethnic distinctions, not racial, um, where some people you know, living in one part of the world look a little different than other people living in this part of the world and those kind of things. But we're all of one blood. And we know that not only from the scriptures, but scientifically. You know, we are of one blood. There isn't a whole lot of differences and distinctions between even people that look vastly different um, in their skin tones or their size or stature or whatever, their hair color. There's very little difference between us and Uh, genetically we go right back to one common ancestor who was adam and through eve goes on to say this and has determined there are pre-appointed times in their boundaries of their dwellings here paul begins to go from the creator god who in some ways you could think might be distant he's not really interested in me but all of a sudden he says wait a minute He's the God who's appointed your boundaries. There are certain things that he doesn't let us do. And it's a good thing probably we kill ourselves in sin. 
but he has even appointed boundaries on the earth and a pre-appointed times. I'm thankful that the Lord holds time and he's outside of time and that man, men and women on this earth are, are pre-appointed in their times if even what they can do on this earth. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. Paul says here, God has given us life and he's given us a certain amount of time. Why? So that we might find the Lord. And it's not that he's far. He says that. Though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. He's teaching the omnipresence of God. And as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And uh, Paul deals with this idea of a creator God who's very much in control of all things. And he's also one that sees all, hears all, understands all. And we are right now dwelling among him. And I think about that because when man, when whatever, men, women, boys, girls, however you want to do it, you know, you might not use the big word om, omniscience, omnipresence, right? omnipotence, all those words, but you might just teach the scriptures on those things and we come to the conclusion, wow, God is big. And we also come to the conclusion that I'm a sinner who has broken a holy God's law and I need somehow to make it right. And he offers that to us, doesn't he? Well, uh, sometimes uh, people do that. And that's what he goes on to say. He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? He who instructs the nations, shall he not correct? He who teaches man knowledge. I find it so sadly ironic that today, with all the knowledge at our disposal, and we have a lot of knowledge, don't we? Listen, if I don't know how to put something together, I can go to YouTube and somebody probably has a video of it, right? Or I want to change a headlight on an automobile and you can't even get to it or whatever. You go there and they're like, oh, there's a video on how to do that. Oh, it's not as hard as I thought. Sometimes it is. Um, we have more knowledge at our disposal today than ever before. And yet, so often, people won't couple that knowledge with the knowledge of God. And in the course of that, we... We're actually saying, and I'm saying we as a people, we're saying, God, I don't want that part of the knowledge. And that's sin. That is the deepest part of us. And we were having this discussion uh, yesterday around the table. Um, Sandy's brother was over for the evening, and we were talking about college, and Lydia was there, and, and things in universities. And I said, you know, it's interesting how our university systems have gone in recent, uh, you know, like the last... Well, about the last hundred years, it's been going that way, where it's getting further and further away from a, a theistic worldview. And today, it's frowned upon to go into higher education and learn anything about a creator God, um, or even taking a course in the Bible, which is the most influential book that's ever been here on this earth. I know why, because the most influential author who's ever been is the one that wrote it but anyways back to back to all that people think they can get more knowledge today and be smarter and yet go further from god it's a sad commentary he goes on to say this the lord knows the thoughts of man and they are futile you can't even hide your thoughts from the lord you might be able to hide your thoughts from those closest to you 
You might be able to hide it from your pastor. doesn't take much there. I can't read minds. Sometimes I, if I try to, I get it all wrong. So I just say it this way. There's one that does. And there's a lot of days I don't even know what's going on in my own mind. And I don't even know how to express sometimes the way I feel or what I'm going through. And there's one who understands me. And he understands you better than anybody else. He's the one who made you. Foolishness, right? He warns them about being foolish. Paul also talks about that in 1 Corinthians. And he compares in in that, in Corinthians, the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of the Lord. And, of course, God's plan and method of salvation appears foolish to those that don't understand who God is or why he is the way he is. He says in verse 18 of chapter 1, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And that is true. It's not that every piece of wisdom that man possesses, even if he's an unbeliever, is is foolishness, but it doesn't amount to a hill of beans in comparison to God's wisdom. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Isn't that great? You want to find wisdom, you'll find it in the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul quotes Psalm 94. So he's quoting the psalm that we're in tonight. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. And again, that's, that's how our wisdom, even the smartest man, woman, whatever that's ever lived, if they don't know the Lord, they fall short in the knowledge that they have. It is like that, isn't it? The scriptures. God has given us not only general revelation, that's what happens when you go outside and you look up and you see the heavens and you say, wow. But then also, um, he's given us specific revelation, which is the Bible. And we're reminded that God is the one who, um, uh, that we, we, we seek, right, in wisdom. Proverbs chapter 3. And by the way, Solomon wrote Proverbs and he was considered the wisest man that ever lived. It says, happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. He personifies wisdom and he says nothing compares to her. Wow. Think of that. The guy who's sitting on his front porch of his mobile home or whatever and doesn't have much acreage or anything like that, just sitting there, he, he knows God, he knows more than the guy in the biggest mansion or estate anywhere um, on this planet. And he has more value ascribed to him 
because he's found something better than gold. Verses 12 to 15, we see accepting God's discipline. Uh, Part of this psalm, as it breaks down, you, you, you just see how the psalmist realizes that trials are for our betterment. Even sin and evil that is committed in our world should push the believer to trust the Lord more, should stir faith in us. Psalm 94, verse 12, Blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law, that you may give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. But judgment will return to, the, to righteousness, and all, who, all the upright in heart will follow it. And again, we're reminded that God chastens his own and allows trials to come for our strengthening. Uh, the scriptures teach that over and over again. Um, you know, from the book of Job all the way into the New Testament and the various trials that Peter talks about, the fiery trials of our faith. Uh, All of those help refine that pure gold that should be within us, right, from the Lord. And it really tells us that we're we're his and we're not just spoiled brats living in comfort. Um, Often that's what happens, isn't it? If we only have comfortable things in our life, and everything is handed to you on a uh, with a silver spoon, as they say. It doesn't often turn out well. End up just as spoiled brats and cannot even handle any adversity whatsoever. Hebrews chapter twelve verse six says, "For whom the Lord loves, He chastens." And be reminded of that if you go through trials and tribulations and even suffering injustices in this world because of evildoers. Um, God loves you in the middle of that. He scourges every son whom he receives. God uses personal difficulties to teach new truths sometimes. And I wish it was different. Um, but often that isn't the way life is, is it? It's one thing just to sort of... Um, read something or even academically you know go through something i mean i i can probably read uh, a whole bunch about for instance american football and learn more about american football but it's another thing when you get a guy like nick who's out there helping coach these guys and he's making them run up and down the field and doing all the other things they have to do to train hard and actually experience that in playing football for example and getting hit and you know catching a ball and running and all those things that you can read about. But unless you're pushed by the coach or you're put into a situation where now it's the real deal, you won't grow into that naturally, will you? It has to be pushed into us. And that's the way our relationship with the Lord is sometimes. We won't go any deeper than the adversity will push us, right? And so when those trials come, it's always, you know, it's always good. It's for our betterment doesn't always feel good, and we don't always accept it gladly, but it is good. Psalm 119, verse 50, it says, This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. Here the psalmist, he understands the afflictions in his life have driven him to the word of God. Psalm 119, 75, 
I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Wow. How about this? Psalm 119.92 Unless your law has been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. You know, if you didn't have this book and the word of God and the law of God, the precepts that he's taught us and revealed to us, I don't know how you could face this life with all its problems. I think that's why so many give up. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. Your precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me, but I will consider your testimonies. He, the psalmist doesn't even pray to be delivered from these afflictions. He just says, when they come. I will, I will rejoice. I will consider your testimonies. Oh, I'm glad for that. And then working with God's justice. <clears throat> that word justice is thrown around quite a bit today. But really, it's all about God's justice. Because everything here on this earth falls short of pure, holy justice. Even the best of judges will sometimes get it wrong. Or sometimes the best of laws that were written don't always get it right as well. People get off on technicalities even though they're guilty. Those kind of things. Psalm 94 verse 16 says, Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would soon have settled in silence. If I say, my foot slips... Your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. Wow, what a verse. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. Sometimes those comforts are the very basic things, the very simple things. When we are thrust into that, everything stripped away from us. The things that we count so dear And all of a sudden, we're just back to the basics of prayer and the Word of God. Sometimes not even having a Bible in front of you, but having it in your heart, right? There have been many Christians who haven't had what we have. We have the actual copy of the Word of God that we can read and and count dear in our lives in all kinds of various forms. You can have it on your phone. You can have it on on an audio recording. You can have it written in all these different languages and how much more we have in this generation. And I'm thankful for when he strips some of those things away from us so we, we dive into it. Shall the throne of iniquity which, which devises evil by law have fellowship with you? Hmm, good question. People will trip up and use law to the advantage of sin. That happens all the time, doesn't it? They gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood. But the Lord has been my defense and my God, the rock of my refuge. I like, and I highlighted my God. The psalmist here makes it personal. But look in the next verse. He says, he has brought on them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. The Lord, our God, shall cut them off. Not only does he realize that he's standing with God personally, but also corporately with other believers. Every injustice that has ever been taking place, every law that has been formed in man's courts that has devised evil will not stand before God. And 
He's our God. We're to be salt and light in this world, which often is so dark and discouraging. I love what Jesus says in Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what it's about. We're to glorify God and be reminded that, listen, evil might reign for a season, but it won't reign forever. And eventually we put off. And you know, we'll someday, well, we'll give an account as a, as a generation. As a Christian, if you are truly one of his, your sin has been already judged at the cross of Christ. It'll never be brought up again in that form of judgment, in that way. And I'm thankful for that. But it is a solemn reminder from the psalmist that we, um, as believers, might find affliction but God will have the last say on that. I'm reminded of uh, Justice Horace Gray, who sat on the U.S. Supreme Court in 1882 to 1902. I wasn't around then when he was there, but many people have sat in that court. And on previous to that, when he was uh, a judge in a lower court, he had had a criminal come to him and stand trial And the man got off on a technicality of the law. And then Judge Horace Gray said this to the man. He says, I know that you are guilty, and you know it. And I wish you to remember that one day you will stand before a better and wiser judge, and that there you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to law. Ultimately, justice is found with the Lord And uh, the laws of man, some of them are good, some of them aren't. But ultimately, God will work it all out, won't he? And we take mind also to be reminded that, hey, if you don't know Christ, well, you'll stand, one way or the other, you'll stand before him as judge. Lord, we are grateful for your word, and we've looked at this psalm, and again, just thankful that we can go down through it tonight. And we are reminded, Lord, we live in a world that seems to, well, seems to live in darkness and groping in darkness for answers of things that they they don't know, acting out through the lusts of the heart and mind, and committing great evil. And yet there are also many righteous, many people that have trusted you. And Lord, we thank you that even tonight we can call you our God. We also can call you my God. Lord, you are the one who's very much interested in all things and know all, knows all things. And we recognize that tonight. We give you glory, which is rightfully yours. In Jesus' name, amen.